This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with journalist Amy Russo was recorded in April 2021. Very pleased to have with us for the very first time uh, on this show, Amy Russo. She is a city reporter uh, at the Providence Journal. She previously wrote for the New York Post, Huffington Post, and the NBC News as well. She, Her work, you have seen it in USA Today and Foreign Affairs, amongst others, and her coverage has spanned politics, national news, and media industry in general. She is a proud graduate of Hunter College in Manhattan, and she again resides in the glorious town of Providence, Rhode Island. We'll be talking about a brand new work called Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America. Should be a great conversation indeed. Amy, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, we're very uh, pleased to have you here, and the warmer weather is is here, and so things are sort of starting to look up. I guess the first question, the most important thing we need to ask you is, are you vaccinated yet? I have not been, uh, but I have a hope that it'll happen soon. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll celebrate your pending vaccination and the release of Women of the of the White House. Let's do this. Let's share with our Lewis at Large listeners, if we could. Amy, what was the path that led you uh, to reporting, and uh, what took you there? And then what from there, what inspired the thought of producing a book? Well, uh, reporting was kind of, you know, this not very direct trajectory, which is what a lot of people in news will tell you. It's not always what we have our hearts set on right out of college. But I knew I loved to write, and I knew I had interest in a lot of different fields. And journalism is just one of those things that naturally lets you write about anything, really, and everything, and lets you be curious. So that's, that's what led me to reporting. And what led me to the book, is that I, I think, generally speaking, as a nation, we overlook the power of first ladies. And I think that's because, it's, you know, it's a ceremonial post. It's not an official post. It's not elected. It's, it's there because the president's election. So uh, but when you look back at a lot of these first ladies, so many of them were hugely influential. Now, not all of them. Some were reluctant. And that's natural and to be expected of certain people who have, you know, the position thrust upon them rather than choosing it. But there's a lot to be gained and a lot to be learned uh, from looking at their stories. And uh, they truly were some remarkable women. As you thought about this, um, did you feel like this was going to, could have the potential to be some kind of sort of trailblazing work in any way, shape, or form? Um... To be quite honest, I think I wouldn't say trailblazing, but it is still the research on first ladies is still quite limited. Um, Betty Boyd Caroli, uh, she had published a book back in the 80s, uh, which I cited in my book, um, and she's done you know numerous updates to it since the 80s. But it really was the first comprehensive work on first ladies. And, you know, that's not that long ago, really, 40 years ago or so. So this is still a field that's being researched, that's being written about, that's getting some attention and probably needs much, much more attention. Um, so I think, you know, any way I can contribute to that and can contribute to that focus uh, is just, you know, more than I can hope for. 
in your opinion, and I want to continue to talk about women of the White House, but I also want to touch on a couple of journalism issues. You've been in the game for a while. Uh, you've worked for numerous publications and in a variety of situations. If you were to start your career over again today, would it have taken a different path? And are the opportunities and the expectations of a news reporter, particularly one reporting in print, the same in 2021 as they were, let's just say, in 2010? No, definitely not. So the two years you're citing there, you know, we had a huge shift kind of happen in between where things became much, much more focused on digital media. And that kind of happened uh, as I was joining the field and coming out of college. So, you know, hindsight is a great thing to have. And uh, looking back, I think, you know, I I still enter this field. I I wouldn't change uh, and do another path. I think it's extremely tough, though. The economics of it are really tough. Um, But, you know, we all have to be more focused on digital media, even print people. We have to be very versatile. Um, There are great expectations that you can do things for print, but you can also do things for web. You can shoot video. You can snap photos. You can tweet. You can, you know, interact with people on social media. So the landscape really did shift between 2010 and, and, and where we are now. All right. Focusing towards women of the White House, just in general, do Americans, from your perspective and having done all the research and putting together this extraordinary collection of stories and, and sort of observations, biological and otherwise, biographical rather and otherwise, are our expectations of our first ladies, are they realistic and are they changing themselves over time? Yeah, they're definitely changing and evolving. Um, you know, Lou Hoover was really the first first lady to to clearly establish uh, this precedent of each first lady having to take on some kind of initiative, right? So that's the one thing that I think Americans expect the first lady to do. She's going to come into office. She's going to have a cause. You know, Melania Trump, we know all about her Be Best campaign. And now um, Jill Biden seems to be focusing on education. She has a passion for military families. Um, so each one, you know, Michelle Obama and her Let's Move campaign, I think that's our prime expectation of first ladies. But I wouldn't say that we expect too much of them because I think a lot of Americans still see the position as ceremonial and not very powerful. It's, it's more of just, you know, a fixture in the White House and this is the hostess that's there and, you know, maybe she'll, you know, do some volunteering or take on initiative or make some trips. But I think we should expect more because they have more power those who want to be politically influential, I think the position has evolved enough at this point that they can be. Um, and, of course, some of that depends on the president uh, helping them along the way to give them that power and allow them that space. Um, but I, I, in terms of expectations, it's really establishing that initiative, uh, whatever goal it is they want to promote while in the East Wing. Do the women of the White House, uh, our collection of 47 uh, that there have been, how would they compare in their role, their stature, and maybe how they're looked at? How do they compare to the women uh, that have been married to other leaders around the world? That is a great question. Um, You know, I'd say it depends on, on who you're looking at, right? Because 
some of the first women to enter the White House, uh, they didn't have a lot of political power. And some found power for themselves, and a lot of that took innovation and took, you know, setting precedents because the position was still new. It was still growing and evolving, and there's no definition of it. It's not written into any of our governmental documents what makes a first lady. So, um, you know, that's a difference. I, you know, if you could compare it to something else, I don't know. I don't know what you could really compare it to. Um, you know, certainly it's different from, from structures like monarchies and other things, but those roles are, are ceremonial in their own right, too. Uh, but I think, you know, the First Ladyship truly is something unique, and the beauty of it is that it lends itself to being defined by each of its occupants. Um, you know, there are women who, who don't do a lot with it and who really do engage more in its traditional duties and, and uh, you know, engage in hostessing duties and event planning and beautification projects and renovations. And there are other women, you know, like the Eleanor Roosevelt's, the Hillary Clintons, who are very politically active, very much out there, whose reputations sometimes surpass their husbands. If you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis from the Flight Deck, as always, of Lewis at Large. Got a good one going here with Amy Russo. She is a longtime reporter, uh, has worked for the New York Post, Huffington Post, NBC News, amongst others. Uh, you have seen her work in USA Today, and she's currently a reporter with the Providence Journal. But we are focusing on a brand-new work called Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America. Amy, uh, again, maybe a little bit higher-level question here. Was there any relationship at all between the First Ladies that were Republican versus those that were Democrat in terms of their approach, their demeanor, or in some ways maybe their general points of interest? Yeah, there really were. Um, let's see. There are a few, you know, uh, examples that could answer this question, I guess. Um, Sarah Polk is a woman that perhaps not a lot of people remember was uh, a conservative Republican. And um, I, her approach was kind of interesting. Uh, she definitely sought to gain power while first lady. Um, she's said to have, you know, passed a lot of her own opinions off as those of her husband's when speaking with um, influential people in Washington. And uh, so clearly she wanted to have some sort of impact while there, but she recognized she was in a conservative space in a male-dominated world, and she operated within that. So her approach, you know, is different from someone like Hillary Clinton, say, who gets out there, you know, runs for Senate, gets elected, um, is very, very vocal. Uh, you have certain people that, that operate more behind the scenes and who are more, um, you know, public. Uh, so definitely different approaches. Betty Ford's another interesting uh, paradox, I'd say. Uh, so, you know, obviously married to a Republican, uh, but she took on some actually liberal stances. She publicly advocated for abortion rights, um, I believe she advocated for those while doing a, uh, a broadcast news interview and then was ridiculed by uh, the uh, National Review as someone who was trying to, you know, quote, rewrite the Ten Commandments on air. So uh, you had people who were, you know, both sides of the aisle, obviously, and then people who were kind of this mix in between and all different kinds of approaches. What about, Amy, also, uh, to the extent that, that you were able to know and sort of get any kind of detail or 
digging really deep into some of this, were there those women in the White House that clearly were in better marriages than others that occupied the White House? And did the role, did the public face of, and did maybe the attitude and how they carried themselves, those that were in great marriages with their husband versus those that were not, were there any differences there as far as you could tell? Uh, yeah, there definitely were. And those who had better marriages, or at least, you know, publicly, it, it looked that way, um, really seemed to have a better connection with the president and therefore tended to have the president's ear more. And I don't know that that always translated to the president making decisions based on that, but they definitely were listened to and considered. You know, it's, it's kind of like sometimes when people say things like a way to a husband is, you know, through his wife, I guess. Um, so one example would be Rosalind Carter. And she was very close with her husband. Um, she was actually quite uh, influential, too. She was the first to establish her own East Wing working space. Um, she played the role of ambassador. She traveled to Latin America, to the Caribbean. And Jimmy Carter called her a very equal partner. So and uh, people knew that. People knew he listened to her and that, you know, you'd have to... Um, you'd have to be in her good graces to be in his good graces. Nancy Reagan same situation. Um, she and her husband attracted media attention first off because they were both starting out as actors uh, as their first jobs. And you know, they were glamorous. They looked good together. And he listened to her as well. Um, after the Iran-Contra affair, uh, there had been aides that, that you know told her husband, you need to get out in front of this. You need to be very public. You need to you know go to a press conference for a very public statement. And she said, you know, no, that's not a good idea. She urged him to apologize with a, you know, prepared statement, not get too much into the public eye. And ultimately, he took her suggestion. So some women, because of those solid marriages, those solid foundations, really, really, you know, had the ear of their husbands on big issues. What about also, to the extent that they could throughout history, did the first ladies, uh, that, that again, like being president, that's a unique fraternity. It is a unique, a unique sorority to be uh, one of the first ladies. Were there relationships outside of the White House, most like undoubtedly after they had left the White House? Were first ladies uh, cordial with one another? And did they ever communicate amongst one another or get together socially or even privately? Yeah, I believe so. I think there were a few cases of that. I know one of them uh, was Dolly Madison. She was kind of this Washington fixture who, long after she left the White House, she's just always around. And I believe she would still make appearances around the White House to kind of step in. And she, of course, um, you know, she was well-liked. She was charming. She was eager to influence politics. She uh, you know, renovated gathering spaces with the help of Benjamin Latrobe, who was, you know, this famous architect. And so she had already established a pretty sizable reputation, and she was one of those people that, that uh, really, you know, outlasted her time in the White House. You know, we had a sense, uh, fair or not, that Jackie Kennedy uh, enjoyed the limelight. Eleanor Roosevelt embraced the opportunity, so to speak, and was very sort of proactive. Uh, same is true, I think, as you said, with Rosalind Carter. Were there those uh, first ladies that genuinely were genuinely uncomfortable 
while their husbands may have been career politicians, they never were really used to and never felt really comfortable in that role. And so, therefore, maybe they shied away a little bit. Yeah, there were a handful, actually. Um, and those cases are quite interesting. And they started with Martha Washington. And, you know, it's understandable that she might be a little reluctant. There had been no first lady. She was setting all the precedents. And she really, she didn't want the job. And she made that clear. And uh, But, you know, once she had it, like most of these cases, she stepped up and she did what was expected of her. She, and at that time, it was really just thing, dinners and social gatherings, so she arranged those things. Um, but even her successor, Abigail Adams, somebody who we think of as being pretty politically vocal when you think about letters between her and John Adams, and, you know, she was an advocate for women, she was, uh, you know, against slavery, um, she was somebody who was very opinionated and, and made those opinions known. But still, she didn't want to be in the White House, she felt like having all that you know, attention and publicity would constrain the way she could live her life, would make her feel like she had to be very cautious all the time. So there were real drawbacks. Um, you know, there, there were people like Elizabeth Monroe, a little lesser known. She didn't even show up to her husband's inauguration. And she wow. didn't return social <laughs> calls either, which was a big no-no. You know, you can't ignore your social calls. Probably trying so, to wonder maybe what we what was more important than your husband's inauguration at that particular moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of examples. A, another uh, kind of funny one, I guess, is Margaret Taylor. Uh, she called Zachary Taylor's candidacy a scheme that was intended to deprive her of her, uh, her husband's company and shorten his life. You know, she's like a little bit uh, strong with her reaction, and she spent a lot of time in her uh, in an upper room of the White House during her first ladyship, saying that she was in ill health. So, you know, the reasoning was a little bit vague, so it's kind of unclear to historians whether or not that was completely the case. As Americans, uh, not only just as a society, but as voters uh, and and as history, the general concept, how are our expectations and do we judge and make analysis of our first ladies fairly? And if not, why is that? Well, I, I guess kind of going back to where we started our conversation, and, you know, of course, I don't, I don't know how every American thinks, but my sense is that overall, we probably don't see the First Lady as much as a, a significant, you know, person in the White House as she really is and as she could be. Um, I think a lot of Americans probably don't understand the you know, capacity for power that that position has and the ways in which, you know, its former occupants had to set precedents. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I think people just don't pay attention to, like, um, you know, it, where initiatives started getting formed and where people started to uh, break barriers in terms of entering politics and Hillary Clinton becoming a senator and, um, you know, all these ways in which each woman has kind of worked to break and expand the barriers a little more for the next person. Uh, so I, I think sometimes because we're not deeply aware of the history of the first ladyship, simply because, you know, it's so secondary to the presidency that we, we probably don't have the context to kind of judge it very accurately. And, and we don't really comprehend its, uh, 
you know, the history of its transformation and what it has the ability to be today. Were there any first ladies, uh, maybe that that maybe fundamentally changed, or their outlook on sort of things changed, and they went, they came into being the first lady on day one, one way, and they left, maybe not a completely different person, but maybe now with new sets of ambitions, new sets of sense of direction, fundamentally changing, or the broadest change, anyone in particular that would stand out to you. Um, yeah, there is one that I do have in mind. Uh, if you could just give me a moment here. Sorry about this. I'm hoping you can uh, cut this part out. No, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean. No, we're good here. This is, uh, this is all about this. Or didn't mean to throw you a curveball here, but I know you've got a lot of people to think about. Yeah, um, I'm so sorry. No, we're all right. What we're we're talking again with Amy Russo, a, a, a longtime reporter, and she currently works with the Providence Journal. But we're talking about a brand new work called "Women of the White House: The Illustrated History of the First Ladies of the United States of America." And we're trying to figure out was there one or two particular first ladies that may have fundamentally changed or their outlook. Uh, may have done a little bit of a 360 from the day they entered to the day they left the, the uh, White House? Well, I guess one example I could give you uh, would be probably Grace Coolidge. Um, when she entered the White House, she was kind of discouraged by her husband from attracting too much attention. And I think he didn't really give her, you know, the power and the tools that she needed to be a really prominent First Lady. But still, she kind of was able to forge her own path and, and find initiatives of her own. She was an advocate for the disabled. And that actually harkened back to her days teaching at, uh, in Massachusetts at the Clark School for the Deaf, um, which was in Northampton at that time. And uh, during her first ladyship, Helen Keller actually was a guest of the White House. So, you know, despite, you know, entering and, and being discouraged, from doing too much, she still, you know, she still kind of found her own initiative and still was able to do her own thing. I would doubt if a lot of us lay awake at night wondering what was Helen Taft all about. Um, but there are some of those iconic sort of more, well, just for better or worse, uh, ones that quickly come to mind. Betty Ford, Pat Nixon, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Hillary Clinton, uh, amongst others. Are from some of the ones that might be, so to speak, better known to the general public, is there are there is there something about them, factually or otherwise, that we have a completely misconception about who they really are? Yeah, I, and I think a lot of it, the ones that we have misconceptions about, are probably the ones that we just don't know enough about. And you mentioned Helen Taft, and she's a great example. And I don't think that's somebody that, that we normally remember. You know, like you said, it's, it's uh, you know, people like Jackie Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, Roosevelt, you know, all those. So Helen Taft, uh, from an early age, because of a discussion group that she was part of with other young people, they, it was kind of an intellectual discussion group. They talked about different, you know, issues of the day. And she used that group to connect her husband with the right people from an early age. And she pushed him to run for president consistently. 
And she ended up being credited with the reason that he even ran in the first place. So she was kind of, you know, the power behind the throne, so to speak. Um, and if I had to mention another example, I'd say Edith Wilson. She's a great example of someone that we really don't think about at all. And she is the woman who's probably come the closest to serving um, in an almost, you know, political capacity when her husband was incapacitated by a stroke. And she she claimed, according to her memoir, she said that uh, while he was incapacitated, she kind of liaised with other politicians and uh, filtered what information he saw during that time. And she was reviewing documents and you know, dealing with things of that nature. So um, she was a big support system for him then. There's debate among historians as to whether or not she overstated her role during that time. Uh, But it is quite interesting that you have these figures that we really don't recall or just don't know much about who actually did have a big impact. So, Amy, as we start to wind down here, uh, you did a lot of research, 47 different people that shared uh, being married to the president of the United States, but decidedly different in their approach, their personality, all of those kinds of things. As you look back on all the research that you did, what what is your big takeaway here? What what did you learn in general uh, about this unique group of women? What, what what's, what's the big takeaway for you? I guess the big takeaway would be you know, the level of innovation that each woman brought to the role. And everybody, you know, there have been 47 of them, and some were reluctant and some were very political and and some were somewhere in the middle doing hostessing duties. But everybody was unique in their own way. And if you look hard enough, in most cases, you can find at least one instance in which each woman was able to break a barrier or, you know, just expand the role a little more or just pave a little more of the way for the next person to have that position. So I I think, you know, it comes down to the fact that not everybody's going to be hugely remarkable. Not everybody's going to be Eleanor Roosevelt. It would be unreasonable if we expected that of every first lady. But everyone has done something, contributed something, in most cases, that shifted the role and gave it just a little more power. Well, again, the work is Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America, uh, ably put together uh, and lovingly put together by Amy Russo, longtime reporter and currently working at the Providence Journal. Amy, uh, before we get out of here, how can people pick up a copy of this? And also, uh, you're a prolific writer. How can they find out a little bit more about you? Well, you can get a copy uh, online at barnesandnoble.com. I believe it's also being sold at Target and Walmart, and it's on Amazon. For all you Amazon folks, I certainly am one of them. <laughs> um, so, and uh, to find out a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about me and my writing, um, you can uh, visit the Providence Journal website. We would uh, love some more readers, and uh, you can also, you know, check out HuffPost. You can check out NBC. Uh, and uh, thank you. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Uh, congratulations uh, on this. Real, it's, a, it's a fun read. Absolutely. Really, really interesting. And uh, have a wonderful 2021. All right. Thank you. You too. You bet. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week. 
and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.